Father, we uh, come to you, God, in need of your word. God, left, left to ourselves, we can, see that, uh, we can see that creation is beautiful. We can see that there is a God, but we, we have no frame of reference. We have no understanding of, uh, of who you are and how we're to respond apart from, uh, apart from your word, apart from uh, your revelation to us. And so, God, we, we want to come to your word and we want to come humble and contrite. Not aiming to master your word, but to be mastered by it. So, God, would you graciously grant us the humility and the attentiveness and teachable minds and hearts that we would sit under the truth of your word and be taught. God, I pray that you would, as you, as you always do, God, that you would meet with us as we open up your word and that you would re- reveal yourself, God, in all of your beauty and all of your mercy and all of your holiness and all of your glory. That, God, as we open up your scriptures, we would gaze upon your beauty, we would see it, and we would be transformed. So God, come and do these things by your spirit. Help us to be attentive, God, to what you have for us. And help us to see your son, Jesus Christ, on full display. We pray, God, that as as we sit under your word, that you would do a work in us. And that, God, you would then send us out as your people in your world on your mission. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, one of the things about uh, the book of James that we've been in is that is James is a book that has very little room for gray. James is a book that calls things as they are, black or white, red or blue. There's no gray. There's no wiggle room in the book of James. And when you get to a book like this, you get to some passages in a book that leaves no gray area. You get to some passages that leave you a little bit uncomfortable. Today is one of those passages. What James does is, James doesn't allow us to separate some of the things that we like to separate. So if we go back to James 1, the first chapter, James talks about trials and he talks about joy. How many of you, when something goes wrong in your day, your immediate response is joy? That's just, that's not how we operate. How many of you, when a plan that you have been working on for a while absolutely just falls apart, your first response is happiness? Right? How many of you, when something in that relationship goes completely sideways, unexpected, your initial response is, wow, God is going to use this to refine my character? I'm sad, but I'm also happy. We don't do that. We separate difficulty from joy. And James is not a book that leaves gray areas, so he makes it emphatically clear that trials and joy actually work together. That God is such a gracious, strong, and redeeming God that we can count it joy when we meet trials of various kinds because of what trials produce in us. So he says you can't separate trials and joy. They go together. Now, we also like to separate things like this, what we believe and what we do. 
talk about, I'm this kind of person, I'm a good neighbor, I'm this, I'm that. But when it comes down to putting that belief into action, we find our excuses, right? And we're slow to put legs on the words that we've said. So we'll separate what we believe, what we think, from what we do. And James says, just like you can't separate trials and joy, you can't separate what you believe and what you do, what you hear and what you do. And in this passage, he's going to talk about that you cannot separate a faith in Jesus from the fruit of your life for Jesus. That your faith and your works come together as two sides of the same coin. And in order to get that point across, James uses very stark terms. And he says, if you're separating your faith from your works, your faith is a corpse. Your faith is dead. Your faith is meaningless. Your faith needs to be resuscitated. So let's look at this text so we can navigate whether we're standing in a living faith or if we're drifting into a dead faith. So James 2, 14 through 26. Jesus' half-brother, James, writes this. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead... So also, faith apart from works is dead. This is a very stark passage. Particularly, verse 24. A person is not justified by, is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body, 26, apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Again, James, right? It's not a gray area book, black or white. It says you either have a living faith or you may have signs of a dying faith. So it's a critical topic to discern, right? Living faith or a dying faith. And here's, here's where, I want to take, where I want to take us. We're really just going to look at two big things from this text. Signs of a dead faith and signs of a living faith. That's the two, the two categories we're going to look at. What James does in this text... First is he's going to respond to, uh, or he's going to deal with this question. If you have faith but do not have works, he says in, in verse 14, can that faith save you? 
And basically what he's saying is, if you have faith but no works, your faith is useless. That's not a faith that can save you. That's not a faith that's real. That's not a faith that has restored you to God by his grace. That is a dead faith, which is what he says in 17 and also in 26. Now, James has been talking about this idea throughout the whole letter, right? A couple weeks ago, we talked, he talked about hearing and doing. He talked about true religion is this. He's, he's all about bringing together our faith and our actions. He says a real faith is going to have these type of vital signs. The vital signs of a living faith are this, faith demonstrated in works. A living faith has a heartbeat of faith demonstrated in in obedience, faith demonstrated in action, faith blossoming into fruit. That's what James is saying. And the first sign of a dead faith, he says, is this. First sign of a dead faith is a faith that has no works in this particular way. Look at the example of 15 and 16. He's going to give us an illustration. It says, if a, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in food, and one of you go, comes to them and says, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled without giving them anything, what good is that? Right? What good is it if you're walking through Davis Square and you see a homeless person? And you say, they say, do you have anything? Can you buy me a sandwich? Give me, give me a dollar for, for something from Panera. And you say, be blessed and be filled. And you continue walking on. Right? That's the worst thing you could do to them, right? You might as well just ignore them if you're going to profess something and then do nothing about it. Right? This is like the friend that says, Oh, I love you so much. You're, such, you're my best friend. You're my best friend. And you need a ride to work. And they don't give you a ride. You need someone to help you move. Like, oh, you're my best friend. They won't show up. Right? It's what good is your profession if there is no action that ever comes along beside it to prove it? What good is it? It's absolutely useless. You might as well not profess anything than to profess and have no works. So James says the first sign of a dead faith is this. It's no works, and it has no works in this way. A dead faith is dead towards others. He says nothing emerges from a dead faith. No love, no mercy, no compassion, no kindness. It's all talk, but when it comes to action, you never extend anything to anyone. This is what he's showing us in 15. Let me put more on this. A dead faith, it looks at others, and it looks at them in either indifference, in arrogance, or in anger. Jesus talked to his disciples in John's Gospel. He says, they will know you by your love for one another. He's speaking specifically love within the, the Christian community, but that extends outward. And James is picking up on his uh, his. his uh, his brother's teaching here in these verses, and he's showing us that if you don't love people in action, you may be dealing with the signs of a dead faith. Now, what's interesting here is James has been talking about money, right? The last section, he just talked about showing favoritism. Let's talk about the rich and the poor. Right? We could extend this to uh, ethnicity. We could extend this in all types of applications. But here's part of what James is getting at in this example. A dead faith looks at people who are different 
and does not extend mercy, love, grace, or compassion. That faith professes Jesus, but then sees a person who's poor and doesn't love them. The dead faith professes Jesus, but sees a person who has a different uh, political views and doesn't love them. A dead faith professes Jesus and sees people who have theology that they may disagree with rightfully, but still doesn't treat them with dignity. A dead faith is detached to others with no works of love, mercy, or obedience. So the test case for us from these first few verses with this vital sign of a dead faith is, how are you towards people who are utterly different than you? Do you profess Jesus and love the people like you as well as the people who are different in critical ways? Does your love have works and action behind it? James is going to go on to say in 16 that this type of dead faith that has no works towards others is absolutely useless. It's worthless. It's dead. It's ugly. It's useless. And and here's the thing. We've all seen pictures of dead Christianity, right? We've seen pictures of people. Maybe we've been those people who profess all the right things, who profess all the good, all proper doctrine about Jesus, but you look at their lives and you see not a drop of love, obedience, godliness, mercy, compassion, kindness. It's as if they're trying to avoid all of those things. And James is giving us a warning so that we won't be those types of people. not the picture of faith that Jesus has come by his grace to secure for us. So James says the first work, first sign of dead faith is that it has no works, but then the second sign of dead faith is this, it's just belief. It's just belief. Look at what he says uh, in 18 and 19. So in 18 he deals with the objection, right? That somebody is going to object and say, well, I'm, I'm kind of the faith person, and that person is kind of like the love and the mercy and obedience person, so we kind of balance each other out. And Jim says, no, no, it, it goes together. And then after that, he, he counters this by saying, you believe that God is one. You do well. So his translation, high five, like, great. You believe that God is one. Very good, very good, right? And this is a call back to Deuteronomy 6, right? This, this hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, right? This is basically what, what James is dealing with here is he's dealing with somebody who has really great theology. Just great theology. Knows the Bible awesome. If you went up to him and said, hey, what, you know, what about second Egyptians? Is there anything about that there? They would know that you're lying. They'd know that's not a real book. In the Bible, right? So you give them to them, hey, I was doing this Bible study in Hezekiah. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> right? I was doing this Bible study in Hezekiah. It was great. They would be like, no, Hezekiah is not a book of the Bible. He's a person, right? I'm like, oh my goodness, really? Okay, you need to fall for it, right? It's a person who's got great theology, knows the Bible, got proper teaching. They could teach for days. They could come up here and do this for endless hours, right? Great. A plus in every area of theology. And theology is a very important, very important. But they got great theology. But that's all they got. And do you know what James says to them? James says, great. You're on the same level as a demon. They have great theology too. They know that God is one too. 
They know that Jesus is the way to salvation too. They know that the Bible is the word of God. They know that God exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Triune in nature. And they can break it down. They can draw you the triangle that shows that they're all each God and yet they're one. And the Father doesn't just put on the Jesus hat and show up as Jesus. But they're distinct and yet one. And it's a beautiful mystery. They could break down all of that. They could break down Jesus as, as this propitiation, this, this substitutionary sacrifice. They could break down all the scrabble words, all the de- definitions, all the verses. Do all of that. And James says, you are on the same level as the demon. High five. James is showing us that theology matters, but that living faith is more than believing the right things. Living faith believes the right things, but a living faith is more than believing the right things. So here's what this means for you and for me. When we kind of do the litmus test on our faith or on somebody else, we might think, well, what do they believe about Jesus? What do they believe about this? James is showing us that matters, but that's only half of the game. That's only half of the story. Because the demons believe impeccable theology. Demons have better theology than all of us. And James is showing us this, that theology is meant to lead you into doing. That if you're really rightly believing something, you'll be rightly living out of that right belief. Right belief can be corrupted by wrong living. Right belief is proven to be right when it's followed by right action. That's what James is showing us here. So it means that whatever we believe, we have to be faithful with it. Right? If a building is on fire, and somebody shouted, the building's on fire, the building's on fire, the building's on fire, and you're standing next to them, and you're in the building, you say, oh yeah, I totally believe you. You pull out your phone and check your messages. Check your email. Put a couple things in your task manager. Right? Do you really believe them? Not at all. Your belief has not produced action. But if they tell you that and you say, you push them out of the way, I'm getting out of here. You run, jump, right? You shouldn't do that. You grab them, take them with you. You jump out together. Like only one of us can make it. Ah! Right? You grab them, right? You say, let's get out. Kick the window. Jump out, right? Do whatever you need to do to get out, right? That is somebody who, who really believes that. Belief followed by action. James is showing us we have got to not only think about a living faith, a true relationship with Jesus, a growing relationship with Jesus in terms of our minds. It is our minds and also our hands. Our hands will show us what we really believe. Right? And we know this is true, right? We can read the verses about how God will give us peace that surpasses all understanding. And we'll believe, oh, God is in control. God is good all the time. Right? We say we believe these things. And yet one email with bad news, one strange thing at work, one hard thing on the home front, and we turn into a stress monster, which reveals deep down, man, we don't really believe all of those things as much as we desire to. And James is saying, this is signs of living faith versus dead faith. So if this is dead faith, no works, belief alone, 
was living faith. That's where James takes us. And he gives us two examples that his hearers would know like the back of their hands and would hold up as exemplars of the faith. And he turns to this. He turns to Abraham and he turns to Rahab. He turns to Abraham, the patriarch of the faith, and he turns to Rahab, a prostitute. This is where he takes us. And he says, Abraham is an example of someone in 21 who was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, before we talk about these two examples, I want to take us um, to this question. The, the first sign of living faith is faith with works. First sign of a living faith, that vital sign, is faith with works. right? But if you even have a small knowledge of Christianity, you're probably asking yourself, wait, how does this passage square up with everything else I've been taught? Right? That's probably the question you, you've been mulling over maybe this whole time. Is How does this passage square up with verses like this? Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How does this passage fit with that? How does this passage fit with Romans 5.1? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how does that fit with what James says in 2.24? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Have we just, have we just found a huge contradiction in the Bible? Right, shut it down, right? right? Is James the author of this letter and Paul the, the author of much of the New Testament... Are they, at, are they at odds? What, what is happening here? One, one sidebar tip is anywhere you see apparent contradictions, it's an invitation to study harder. Acts 15 actually records James and Paul together in the Jerusalem Council uh, on the same page about this. Right? But more important to that than that for, for our time is that they're saying the same word or teaching but emphasizing a different aspect. They're using this word justified, justification, in two related but different ways. For an understanding of justification, I want you to put yourself in a courtroom and imagine a judge with a gavel. Justification is the judge coming down with the gavel upon somebody on trial and saying, not only are you innocent, you're actually fully and completely, positively perfect and righteous. It's a courtroom verdict. It's a verdict that says, yeah, you're not just off the hook. You're 100% cleared and 100% morally upstanding. That's what it means to be declared justified. To be 100% cleared and 100% righted. And Paul, when he teaches about justification in the Bible... Paul says justification is this. It's being made right with God, declared legally pure and righteous. And it happens through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, through faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible teaches that 
Through Jesus, God has made a way for broken people, broken sinners like you and me, to be declared innocent and fully righteous in God's sight through the work of Jesus, through his death, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection. So Paul says this, you're justified by faith. When he says that, he's saying you're made right with God only through faith in the work that Jesus has done, not in what you do. And when James say you're justified by works, not by faith, he's saying that your works prove. Your works justify in a sense of demonstrating that you're right with God. Paul talks about justification as the means in which we are made righteous. James talks about justification in the sense in which we prove that we've been made righteous. Paul, how we're declared righteous. James, how we demonstrate that we are in fact made righteous through faith. And the reason why James says it like this in 24, the reason he says that you're not justified, that you're justified by works and not faith alone is because he wants to shake people up. Have you ever overstate something to get someone's attention? Right? That person in your life that is so stubborn that you almost just have to kind of lie a little bit to finally like get through to them. I remember reading this story um, somewhere this week about, uh, about a, uh, a husband who's working way too much at his job. And he had been promising his wife, you know, in a couple months, a couple months, I'll get back to my normal rhythm, a couple months, a couple months. And, and he, it just didn't happen. And eventually... He comes home, and she's on the patio with their wedding china, dropping a plate and smashing, like the saucer plate that you put a cup on, drops the plate, smashing it with hammer. So she's doing, she's done like, she's gone through like two, three plates, and he comes home, he's like, oh my goodness, like she's having a breakdown, like I've really messed up. And so it goes upstairs, and they talk. She's like, you, you're working way too much. Like this is not healthy for you, it's not healthy for the family. And uh, he's like, you know what? You're right, I've been absolutely delusional about this, and your dramatic acting has, uh, has, has brought this to my attention. Now, afterwards, she tells him that, well, you know, these plates, I lost the cups for them, so we're gonna th- I was going to throw them out anyway, but I figured this was the only way to get through to you. So, she, so to her, it's kind of just like a show. To him, he's like, wow, I really have messed up, seriously. But it got his attention, right? Overstatement, a little bit dramatic, right? A little hyperbole. That's what James is doing here. He wants to knock us out of our spiritual sloth that says, I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus, and eh, it doesn't really matter how I live. I love Jesus, Jesus loves me, so I really don't need to love my neighbors. I mean, I need to, but you know, if it happens, it happens, right? I love Jesus, I'm saved by grace. I don't really need to make disciples. That's not really that important, and I'm gonna try to when I can and when it's convenient and when it aligns with my schedule, but it's not this thing that I'm, that I'm giving myself to. James wants us to not have that type of dead faith. He doesn't want us to have it because that's not what Jesus has come to give us. And so to wake us up, he uses these stark terms. And if we put together what James is teaching and what Paul is teaching, here's what they're saying. They're speaking the same message, but they're like two different instruments in an orchestra. Same message, but coming through a tuba and coming through a trumpet. It sounds a little bit different, but they complement each other. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, we're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that stays alone. We're saved by faith alone in what Christ has done. 
But a living faith never stays alone. Do you know what's behind it? Like two crazy children just running along? Works. A living faith means you're saved by grace in Christ alone. But trailing behind you is a bunch of good works. It's love. It's mercy. It's disciple making. It's prayer. It's mercy towards your neighbors. It's a heart of love towards those who are even different than you. Because God, who is completely other than us, has shown grace and mercy and love to you. Faith that is living is not alone, but accompanied by works. So the question for us that James wants to press in front of our faces is this. Are we coasting along in a comfortable faith that's alone? Are we coasting along in a comfortable faith that's by itself with no works attached to it? Is your faith alone or is your faith living and breathing followed by works of obedience to Jesus, acts of love to his people and those outside of it in ways that honor Jesus? Are there parts of your life of faith that are dead? We can have little parts of our lives uh, of our life of faith that are dead. Right, have a living faith altogether, but have little parts that 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 are that are kind of on life support. And James wants to prove that the vital sign of a living faith is a faith that has works, and he, he proves this by, by referring to Abraham, who's the central figure of the Bible. You see him in Genesis 12, um, and, and much of the rest of the book of Genesis, but he appears um, and first pops in the scene in Genesis 12, and, and he pops in as a nomad who has nothing. Just a, just a man with, with the staff wandering, the couple animals with him. And God comes to him, and God says to him, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you and make you the father of many nations. And you're going to be so central to my story and my work in the world that your offspring are going to be like sand at the beach, stars in the sky. You can't remember. So he gives Abraham this call. He says, go this way. Go here. Abraham obeys. He goes. Abraham also does many shady things, which we don't have time for. But I encourage you to read them. I will encourage you that God blesses shady people. Very, very encouraging. I'm not going to lie. We have, our, have elements of shade. We all have elements of shadiness in us, right? And so God is going to bless Abraham despite all of his shadiness. Continually lies, lying all over the place. I mean, he's just got, he's got problems. But he believes God and he obeys. His belief has action that emerges from it. And so Abraham, the central promise he's given by God is this. I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and through you, blessing is going to come to the whole world. It's a, it's a prophecy that through the line of Abraham, Jesus will be born, bringing salvation to the nations. And so if you're being told that you're going to be blessed through being made the father of many nations, it means that an important part of that blessing, the way that that blessing is going to come to you, is going to be through your what? Your children, your offspring. Problem is, Abraham's a little bit old. So there's not a lot happening, right, that's going to lead to that blessing happening, right? But God says, hey, I'm, I'm God. Trust me. I got this. And eventually, after Abraham does more shady things, um, eventually Isaac is born. Now, here's the way that the blessing's going to come. So how do you think that Abraham feels about Isaac? Loves him, cherishes him, protective, right? 
this is the way that the blessing to the whole world is going to come. So I bet you Abraham does not let Isaac run out of his sight on the farm. Isaac, you stay. Like, if it was today, Abraham would have a leash, right? One of the parents with a leash for Isaac. I cannot let you run too far because then the blessing is going to go away if you, if you go crazy and get lost or something. So we've got Abraham. He's, he's, he's protective of his son. We've got to imagine. Use our imaginations here, right? He's protective of his son. And then God comes and says, hey, Abraham, I want you to go to the mountain. Sacrifice, which they did all the time. We know they did this all the time because Isaac knows what to bring. This is just normal. They worship God. They do this as an atonement so that they can be right with God because they're not perfect. He says, this time I want you to sacrifice, uh, sacrifice something different. I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac. Which is like, but Isaac, is the, the blessing comes through him. Abraham gets his stuff and he runs. Up the mountain to obey. He goes up the mountain to obey Isaac is saying, where's the sacrifice? And he says, God will provide it. And they keep going. And they get ready and they prepare the altar. And the deed is about to be done. And God says, stop. God says, stop. And he says this. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Abraham is the pinnacle of faith and action. Who could even take a step towards that mountain? Only somebody who believes the character and goodness of God. It's the only person who can do it. Who says, who could say, this command seems very out of step with who God is, but I trust his character so much, I'm going to follow him. See, Abraham didn't just believe in God in talk. His faith led to faithfulness. Faithful action. And this is what God says. God says, now I know that you fear me, you reverence me, you, you treasure me. And this no is, is not just mental no, it's experience. Now I have experienced this cherish, this cherishing affection you have towards me. James's point is this, is that Abraham's works proved his living faith. Then he gives us Rahab, a, a prostitute. He shows us a patriarch and a prostitute. He's trying to show, an uh, application of this is he's showing us the scale of somebody who we'd look to and say, wow, that's amazing. And someone maybe we'd look to and say, uh, maybe not. He's showing us that God can do this in any of us. And Rahab's story is this, that she's a Canaanite woman, a prostitute, but she believes that the God of Israel is the true God. And so when Joshua, in Joshua 22, their army is coming to town, she acts on her faith. She acts on her faith by welcoming the, the Israelite spies into her home, even though she's basically committing treason to her own kinsmen. She puts her neck on the line in order to do a work that demonstrates her love and faith towards God. A living faith is a faith that is proven by works. And I want you to think about this. What is motivating Abraham and Rahab to these works that come out of their faith. What's motivating them? What's behind it? 
Because think of it like this. James has just told us demons know everything right about God. But what are they missing that Abraham and Rahab possess? What they possess is they've seen the love of God. And they've been gripped by the love of God. A dead faith can see the holiness of God, that he's perfect in all of his attributes. A dead faith can see the wisdom of God, that he knows everything and gives us guidance on how to live. A dead faith can see the greatness and the power of God, can even see a little bit of the, uh, the love of God, a little bit. But it's not gripped by the love of God. Abraham and Rahab are gripped by the love of God and what drives them into obedience at risk to themselves is that they've seen the love of God and they've seen how lovely God is and they obey God in such a way that love is behind it saying, I don't care what the consequence is, I love my Savior. A living faith wants to please God just because of who God is. That's a living faith. That's what makes it different from the demons. Not for what you get, not for what you escape, not for the ticket to heaven, though heaven is real, not for escape from judgment, though judgment is real. A living faith loves God because of who he is, what he has done, and, don't miss this, who he is. Right, a dead faith does this. A dead faith shudders at the thought of God, and a dead faith is driven by guilt or fear. I want to escape this. I don't want that consequence. Well, this will make me look like this in front of the church people that I sort of like. I don't want that. Right? A dead faith is all guilt and fear, reputation, image, results-oriented. A living faith says, I just love Jesus. And I want to obey him because of what he's done for me. Let me ask you this question. Is your faith driven by guilt or fear? Or is it driven by seeing God's love in Christ? Right, what's the strong motivator when you encounter God's word or, or something you know you need to respond to in a way that honors God? Is it guilt? Is it fear? Is it reputation? Or is it love? When is the last time that you obey Jesus or did a work in honor of Jesus simply because you love Jesus. When we see God for who he is, that will transform us and will breathe fresh uh, life into a faith that needs to be resuscitated. I want us to close like this. God asks Abraham to do something a little bit strange, right? A little bit dramatic. But this is how we see the love of God that breathes life into dead faith. So when we see that what God asks Abraham to do, God himself has done. That God asks Abraham to give his son, but he knows he's going to stop him. He knows he's not going to put that on Abraham because he's going to put it upon himself. That's why if you hear the story of Abraham, you say, isn't that horrible? What kind of God would do this? You've got to keep reading the story. You, you basically watch five minutes of a movie. You've got to see the end. You've got to see the callback. You've got to see what God is setting us up for. 
We're supposed to see Abraham and think, wow, this context, this setting, but then get to Jesus Christ. That God asked Abraham to do something that he knew full well he would not have him do because he would do himself through Christ. That God through Christ comes and goes not to a mountain but to a cross. But the same purpose, sacrifice. The same purpose, atonement. The same purpose to restore us back to himself. But at no cost to us, an infinite cost upon him. Says Abraham, you don't have to pay this because I'm going to pay it with my own son. Now I want you to think about your sense of justice. I want you to think about how strong your sense of justice is. That if you're like me, and I bet you are in some, some of these ways, that when you see the news, when you read a story about a crime that you know is wrong, you start to burn inside a little bit. That you have a sense of this is not right and this person needs accountability. Something must happen. Sometimes I'll read the news, I'll get so angry when I see something. That I have to step away. We have this sense of justice within us. And if you don't have that, just think of the times when you've been wronged personally. We have this sense of justice. Now I want you to imagine, what does God feel? To have a humanity that he's created. That are constantly harming people made in his image. Constantly devaluing him, constantly rejecting him, constantly rebelling from him. What must God feel if our small sense of justice is burning? What must God, who is entitled to all honor, what must he feel? Who has a pure sense of justice, what must he feel? And yet God doesn't unleash judgment. He doesn't unleash condemnation. He says, I'm going to take it. I'm going to put my son on the cross. I'm going to put my son on the altar and receive it for all who would believe in me. Clearing them, making them righteous, bringing them to me in relationship forever. When you see this, when you believe that and see this, works will flow. You will be compelled by love and that will breathe life into dead faith. When we see what Christ has done, sent by the Father, given by the Father for us to restore us. Living faith will flow in works. Honoring Jesus will come from that faith. And here's what I want you to, what I want you to think about this way. Everyone has seen pictures of dead Christianity. What if people through you, through us, saw pictures of living faith? Everybody's seen the picket signs. Dead faith, right? Boycotts, dead faith. All that garbage. Dead faith. What if people saw through us living faith? In your neighborhood, at your workplace. You know what they'd see? They'd see a glimpse of Jesus. And God would become beautiful and they would be compelled to consider the gospel. So the choice is ours. Are we going to have a faith that is living, a faith that is dying, a faith driven by guilt, a faith driven by fear, or a living faith compelled by the love of Christ.